0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: Hi, law lovers. Welcome back to series three of The Hearing. This has been
0: the most wearisome, difficult, Mm. rather obsessional process that this country has been embarked on, which is diverting our attention and, and energy from all the other myriad topics, which we should, in fact, have in focus.
1: Joining me on The Hearing today is the reluctant rebel Dominic Grieve. Dominic's been a fundamental part of the whole Brexit campaign, but as well as that, he's been a very well-known, high-profile lawyer within the government for many years now. I've known him to be something different to how he's characterised by the press, by the media, and I think that really came through today. What surprised me, perhaps, about Dominic was his honesty. And how straightforward he was in talking to us about his experiences and his relationships, both in Parliament and outside.
0: The hearing,
1: Dominic. Thank you so much for meeting us at a time when I know you're incredibly busy. It's very much appreciated. And we're going to talk you back a little bit to your early career um, in the law. Uh, I suppose, first of all, uh, why the law? Because your father was a politician.
0: My father was a politician, but he was also a lawyer. Ah. I have to say, I wasn't at all certain I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I went to university and it sort of was around distantly in the mm. back of my mind. I actually did the civil service exams in my third year at university uh, with the possibility of going into the foreign office. Mm. They probably rather sensibly turned me down uh, at the end of the second stage. Um, I had no desire to go off go off and become a chartered accountant or a banker, mm. which was what most of my colleagues, my friends at the university were doing. Yeah. And uh, my father was a great believer in being self-employed. And he, mm. he said to me that he thought I would enjoy going to the bar. Uh, so that's what prompted me to go and do it. So mm. I did the converter course, what was then the Central London Polytechnic,
1: yes,
0: uh, now the University of Westminster. Yeah. I have to say, not a very pleasant <laughs> course, a sort of learning by rote 12 month course mm. uh, that didn't grip me very much at all. Mm. Um, I don't think I did very well in it. Then we did the bar finals year, which I think was a bit jollier. Mm. And then I went and got myself a pupillage in um, a, a very good set of chambers, uh, Crown Office Row, which yeah. did a lot of PI work in those days, the PI staple. But I have to say, I don't think I was a very academic Lawyer and life really only took off when I started to stand on my feet and do advocacy. Mm. That's what got me going. Until then, I think compared to my three years reading history at university. I didn't find the law very gripping at all. But once I was on my feet in my second six months, then I realised that actually my father had been right. It was the right choice.
1: Yeah, I think you're speaking for a lot of people uh, when you say that as well. But um, and and the public speaking aspect of it, obviously that that comes very naturally to you. Uh, Where did that come from? Is that from being from your home life, from through school? I think the public speaking comes from advocacy in court.
0: I was called to the bar in 1980. Uh, I had to do three, Mm. I had to do a second pupillage. So I I did a third six and then got taken on. Mm. Uh, So I moved chambers, which in those days was quite possible to do at the end of my 12 months. Uh, And they took me on. So from 1982 to 1990, I was in something which doesn't really exist anymore, a genuine, general common law set. So we were jacks of all trade. We had a a lot of work based down in Kent and Mm. Sussex. Uh, There was also work in London. It was family work, it was general common law contract, tort, personal injury, and Mm. a lot of crime. Mm. So in those eight years, there was a Mm. lot of jury trial. Mm. And that's really where my advocacy comes from, Uh, particularly as I'm a person who doesn't write things down. So I never used to write my closing submissions verbatim, I would have notes. Uh, And so the advocacy skills are entirely the product
1: Mm. of being a barrister. Mm. And was that always uh, in the back of your mind that you would go into a political role? was Was that your ambition? Or was that something which again came later? I had an interest in politics, which really started, clearly there was some interest
0: through my father, but. And I used to, because I was at school quite close to Westminster, when I was sort of in my teens, I could pop over and listen to mm. debates in the public gallery of the House of Commons. And I would mm. do that occasionally in the afternoon. He'd give me a cup of tea and get me a ticket and I'd go up for a couple of hours before going back up to school because I was <laughs> a boarder. Right. Uh, but really, the interest took off at university. Mm. Uh, it was a very um, febrile time. It was, uh, I went up in 1975. Mm. Um, uh, the Labour government had just come in, in the 74 general mm. elections. Uh, there was great anxiety about the country's future. People felt that we were disappearing down the plug hole. We'd only recently joined the then EEC, mm. uh, and the effects of membership hadn't yet started to kick in. And Britain was in a very bad place. And so we were a very motivated group of centre-right students Mm. uh, who did a great deal uh, uh, within the Oxford University Conservative Association, including going leafleting the Cowley works at six o'clock in the morning when (laughs) the night shift came out. And you could watch the change Mm -hmm. in public opinion come about in those three, four years, which led directly to Mrs. Thatcher's victory in Mm. May 79, which was just 10 months after I'd come down from university. Mm. So that's where my interest in politics developed. When I started out my bar training, obviously I was doing very little. But in due course, I did two things. One, I joined the Society of Conservative Lawyers. And the second thing was in 1982, Uh, I was asked by my local Conservative Association branch, would Mm. I stand as a councillor in the local elections of 82? Now, the truth is nobody expected uh, in Hammersmith and Fulham, which was where it was, that Mm. we would win the 82 (laughs) uh, local elections. But they fell bang slap in the middle of the Falklands War. And there was a sea change of opinion as the uh, election took place. And as a consequence, rather unexpectedly, I ended up as one of the councillors. And I had four years on the council, which mm. I enjoyed very much, and that sort of consolidated my appetite and interest. During that time, I got on the Conservative Party candidates list, and I then f- fought the 1987 election, at which stage I was no longer a councillor, mm. uh, in Lambeth Norwood. Mm. So a Labour seat took in the front line, Brixton, uh, and then the sort of hills going up towards Crystal Palace mm-hmm. really enjoyed my two, three years there, two years before the election. And I stayed on helping them for a couple of years after till they reselected another candidate for 1992. I didn't get a seat to fight in 1992, which I was mm-hmm. rather disappointed about. Uh, but very unexpectedly, in 1997, I got selected at the very last minute for Beaconsfield. Right. And interestingly, at a point where I told my wife, who was rather pleased to hear this, uh, that I was giving up you know, all ambition of getting into the House of Commons. Um, I would take a few days off, join the election campaign to help the party. It was obvious to me that the Conservatives were going to lose the election. Yeah. And I-, I took the view that the best thing to do uh, was probably to give up going into the House. Uh, into parliament and just concentrate on my law career, which Mm. by then I was enjoying enormously. So it wouldn't have been a very great sacrifice. Uh, But there we are, the fates
1: intervened (laughs) and I ended up somewhere else. So tell me a little bit about how it was being a councillor and then being on the sort of the campaign trail, whilst also balancing that with your day job um, at the bar. Being a councillor and uh, the day job at the bar was quite
0: difficult mm. because council meetings used to go on till 10 or 11 at night sometimes with mm. committees uh, and I'd then get home and I'd have to prepare the brief for the following morning, which probably meant travelling to Canterbury, sitting up um, in my you know, my little kitchen, I was a bachelor in those days, um, The uh, tra- trying to make sure that I had everything prepared to be in court at uh, 10 o'clock uh the following morning mm. having left home to get there at about half past seven so uh, it was quite tough and quite hard work but i was young and uh full of vigor and so uh, and i had no ties so you know you could always sleep it off at the weekend so it was <laughs> it was a uh, but it was it was hard work yeah uh, and combining those two was difficult and i'm actually quite pleased that i had this period after I'd ceased to be a counsellor and after 1987 where effectively I had 10 years in which to develop my practice and there weren't so many intrusions into my time and that was also a very pleasant time for me.
1: Uh, but, but you you say you only had time, for the, well barely had time for those two things but you managed to fit in some wooing uh, in the meantime but I suppose are you mixing business and pleasure because you're married to a barrister? Well I am married to a barrister <laughs> Uh, we met
0: rather curiously in our gap year between school and university in Florence, but neither of us remembers anything about it. <laughs> we do know that we met um, because we then met again a few months later. And uh, we remember that meeting and referring back to the earlier one. But I then didn't set eyes on her for again for about, I think, six or seven years. And it was it was indeed as young barristers mm. that we met. Uh, we were involved together in the Young Bauer programme, which takes barristers over to the Netherlands mm. and they come back over from the Netherlands on alternate years. Mm. And we became friendly and in due course, things sort of moved gently on. Although she, she would probably argue that they went rather slower than she would have wished. <laughs> uh, but that may have been the my invo- I don't know whether that was my involvement in politics or work. Uh, but we got married in 1990, so uh, and uh, we've been very happily married since. Good, and the Anglo-Dutch exchange still happening. Uh, it is indeed, and it's a very
1: valuable exchange, and I really enjoyed participating in it. Mm. Uh, well, and, and potential there uh, for uh, future dating opportunities as well—not not for you, obviously, but for other people. Um, uh, and uh, your, sort of your entrance into politics—you you very quickly moved to the front benches.
0: I was moved fairly quickly to the front benches. I Partly, that was a reflection of the fact that the Conservative Party only had 150 MPs. So (laughs) we were in a pretty bad way. And uh, I got appointed as a junior spokesman on constitutional affairs Mm. in, I think, 1999. So two years after getting Mm. into the House of Commons. And yes, thereafter, I had a very long period on the front bench. Uh, doing a variety of first junior posts, mm. uh, constitutional affairs, then criminal justice uh, from 2001 to 2003, mm. and then not with any prior intention, finding myself niched into uh Becoming uh, the shadow attorney general, mm. uh, whereas I have to say, when I went into the House of Commons, it wasn't in the intention of taking the law into politics. Uh,
1: but I've never succeeded in getting rid of the law. <laughs> well, it, it, which is a great thing, um, and, and and using your skills. But the skills probably had to develop quite quickly as well. A long way from we're a long way from sort of criminal law and and PI uh, moving into constitutional issues, international law. Yes. I had an interest in constitutional issues,
0: but I certainly didn't have any great knowledge of constitutional law at all when I came in. And international law, even less, mm. I never touched it. Mm. So it is an irony that having been Attorney General, the two areas where you probably have to dabble most are international law and EU <laughs> law and constitutional law. Uh, I've acquired those as time went mm. by and I've enjoyed that very much. When I came in, it, as I say, it wasn't my intention particularly to use my lawyer's skills. Mm. And of course, political skills and lawyer's skills are slightly different. I always laugh and uh, say to people that at um, you know, it, the it, bar on the whole, you get your brownie points for being concise and precise. Mm. Whereas I have to say in <laughs> politics, uh, obfuscation and verbosity are often seen to be uh, advantages rather mysteriously. Uh, so you do have to sort of change your style and your mm. approach a little bit. But I hope I brought some of the rigour of being a barrister
1: into my political career. And at the same time, I've enjoyed the politics. Mm. And you, uh, as, as shadow attorney in general, initially, is that a difficult job? Because you're not advising the government. How, how does that work? Are you Are you constantly keeping people in check?
0: It's a strange job. The reality is that Part of it is occasionally being called on to give the shadow cabinet Mm. your legal opinion on something the government is doing. But actually, that didn't happen Mm. very often. You were there to provide, I think, also a bit of wise counsel and to restrain Mm. people getting a bit het up (laughs) in shadow cabinet. The other role was really acting as the sort of deputy to David Davis, who was then the shadow home secretary. So David and I did run a sort of double act together in challenging the government, particularly over issues of human rights. Mm -hmm. And at a time when they were very busy uh, trying to enact legislation, which the two of us considered to be very detrimental to yeah. fundamental human rights, like 90-day pre-charged mm. detention, incitement to religious hatred was another one, mm. and the chilling effect it could have on freedom of speech, yeah. and then finally 42-days pre-charged detention. Yeah. So those were quite big events in the sort of period between 2005 and 2008. Mm. and two thousand and eight, and. David and I worked together, I think somebody described it that David would go in with a club and bang them over the head, and then I would carry out a public dissection (laughs) of the corpse (laughs) with some forensic legal skills. (laughs) Not, not, not not, Not the most charming of images, but I think it perhaps did illustrate we worked very happily and well together. Uh, in this period in, and he did he, he provided the heavyweight and I came mm. in and put the stiletto uh, in where I thought
1: that uh, it might help it's not a cartoon <laughs> I remember seeing in the times uh, it's an image that'll stay with me now um, the, uh, so the the progression then first of all I think to Shadow Home Secretary
0: David uh, Davis then went Uh, very unexpectedly uh, because he wanted to fight his by-election. And so David Cameron said, would I become Shadow Home Secretary? He made pretty clear to me Mm -hmm. that he was putting me in as something of a stopgap and he hadn't made up his mind what to do. It was a very David Cameron sort of thing to do. He rang me from he was standing on a harbour side in Cornwall. Of course. And he rang me up and said, you're going to have to be Shadow Home Secretary. So I said, fine. And I then did that for six months. Mm. Um, Rather sorry, he moved me to justice and I'm, I'm afraid The background story to that is that he was ordered to do so by Rebecca Brooks uh, and the Murdoch newspapers because they disliked my... Take on the European Convention on Human Rights. So this was the first time that this started to create a degree oh, of really? great. It's, it's quite, it's yeah. quite clear. I mean, I think it's 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 overwhelmingly clear that's what happened. Mm. So he moved me to justice, which I was very happy to do, mm. which ironically gave me much more control over the uh, <laughs> policy on the European uh, Convention on Human Rights than being Shadow Home Secretary. I, I always was a bit mystified as to why. <laughs> if only there was more understanding of constitutional law. Um, so I then spent. Two very intense, well, a year and a bit, the Mm -hmm. whole of 2009 Mm. and the start of 2010, preparing for taking over a department which many people regarded as something of a basket case Mm. was already then underfunded. Uh, And we did a lot of work. Uh, And interestingly, Jack Straw was very decent because as we came up towards the election year, Mm. he facilitated my having more extensive opportunities to talk to the civil servants in the MOJ than had ever been done before and probably has ever been done since. And that was entirely Jack's decision. Uh, And he did it because I think he could see that the writing was on the wall for the Labour government, that Mm. the Justice Department had lots of challenges. And he Mm. wanted to make sure uh, that there could be as smooth a transition as possible really so i benefited very much from that Mm. uh it was a it was a very good process and as i say, i've always um, owed a considerable debt of gratitude Mm. to him for the the Mm. broad-mindedness he took over that Uh, but of course as always happens, you prepare endlessly mm. to do a job. Mm. And then the election came and we won it, but we won it in coalition. So mm. Ken got the job.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I was made Attorney General. Um, it's interesting you mention Ken, because there are many similarities between the two of you. And I'm sure you're not surprised by that. Um, uh, Some sort of similar uh, political careers, career at the bar as well. But now um, uh, he's, he's often referred to as the, sort of the greatest prime minister we never had. Um, and similar similar things have been mentioned about you. Now. Um, well, there's still time. Uh, Ken perhaps less less interest these days. But um, do you do you have a close relationship with Ken with with Jack Straw, for example, still?
0: I, I get on
1: very well with Jack Straw, and
0: Jack and I are members of the Council of Reference of the Westminster Abbey Institute. Uh, and we also meet uh, through a, a common interest and involvement with uh, the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies, oh. uh, which I'm now a trustee. Uh, but, but we've also been involved in giving them some guidance in mm. the work they're doing. So, yes, I see Jack from time to time. And he's a, he's a friend and somebody for whom I have great respect. Mm. Uh, Ken, uh, of course, Ken's <laughs> a friend and a colleague. Uh, and uh, I've uh, enjoyed got to know him much better really in the last five or six years. Mm. I think I realized just what a heavyweight he was when Mm. I saw him in cabinet, when he was was Justice Secretary and then went on to be, he had this sort of minister without portfolio Mm. role after Cameron moved him. And gradually as the European issue built up, uh, I realized that we were thinking along very similar lines. Although it's right to point out that I would always have defined myself as a, a moderate Eurosceptic, mm. uh, whereas I think Ken would have defined himself as being much more positive mm. and Europhile. But you would have to ask him that. Although he he also saw the shortcomings, but he was very much yeah. a proponent of engagement with the EU, and I think history will show that he was in fact right. And my mild Euroscepticism had. Uh, The detrimental effect that I probably didn't speak up enough Mm. for the benefits of EU membership in the early part of my political career as an MP. But once we saw the enormity, I think, of the risks that the UK was embarking on, Mm. uh, we saw alike Mm. and have largely seen the like about this ever since, mm. although that doesn't mean to say that over the issues as to how Brexit is now being handled, we nevertheless always agree because he is very independent minded and has shown total independence, in fact, in mm. as to how he approaches the risks and challenges that Brexit has for us. Mm. Um, uh, but that's that's how b- individuals in politics have their views, but we do cooperate together very closely.
1: Mm. I want to take us back a little bit because things that, such as um, human rights, rule of law, civil liberties that spin out of that um, became very much a part of your time's attorney general as well. They did. It wasn't particularly my intention. Most of my work
0: as attorney general uh, concerned uh, the routine of the attorney's job, whether it's uh, getting an inquest decision quashed and getting the Hillsborough uh, in- inquiry uh, up and running mm. Uh, whether it's decisions to prosecute newspapers for contempt of court, Mm. uh, uh, whether it's the general day-to-day advice to government on a wide range of issues, a fascinating job, uh, upholding the rule of law because the attorney has a whole series of separate functions doing that and trying to maintain the efficiency and effectiveness of the Crown Prosecution Mm. Service, because of course you have superintendents of that as attorney uh, and you have to work closely with the Director of Public Prosecutions, Mm. uh, in order to try to ensure that that happens at a time when uh, there were quite severe cuts to the budget, numbers were being reduced, and we had to maintain efficiency. So challenging, Mm -hmm. that's what took up most of my time. Human rights uh, shouldn't really have been a particularly prominent issue. We're Mm -hmm. adherent to the European Convention. In my view, the European Convention has been working perfectly well. Uh, But we were dogged throughout the period of the coalition government by the issue of prisoner voting, Mm. which Labour had ducked when they were in office and handed to us as a poison chalice when we got in. And and I also had to cope with the fact that I had a prime minister who I greatly respected, who had a complete bee in his bonnet Mm. on the European Convention on Mm. Human Rights and the Human Rights Act and kept on trying to find ways of wriggling the UK out of its obligations or talking about having a Bill of Rights, which would Mm. effectively be the Human Rights Act minus. And so an awful lot of my time and energy was taken up trying to gently argue uh, the contrary arguments, Mm. explain why I thought the ECHR and the HRA were working. Pretty well for all the you can mm. you can make some proper criticisms. You know issues like the interplay between the ECHR and the Human Rights Act and uh, the law of war, for example, and the mm. problems that can pose on the battlefield with detaining people. These are some very real issues. But for all that, my judgment has always been that the ECHR and the HRA are overwhelmingly beneficial to mm. our country and our country's status and standing in the world. So as the years from 2010 to 2014 went on, I did become increasingly aware that there was a desire to do something about the HRA of which I disapproved. Mm. And I tried to manage that, but there's no doubt that eventually David Cameron sacked me because that's what he did, uh, because he wanted to move on to putting in the Conservative Party manifesto for 2015, Mm. material which I think he knew I would politely say to him, uh, was both detrimental uh, to our country's standing, wouldn't do what he wanted to achieve and Mm. was very foolish. Uh, And that was my view and that's why he got rid of me. He was kind enough through his press office to indicate (laughs) 24 hours after he'd sacked me that that was the reason why he'd done it.
1: (laughs) Throughout that period, but also particularly at that moment, did you see any conflict between your role as a lawyer um, and as a politician, because you're very much there as the government's legal advisor, their lawyer. And how, how, how do you deal with that perhaps internal conflict uh, between your own political beliefs, but also those of the, the rule the, of law?
0: The attorney is there in part to ensure that the government gets proper legal advice. He's got to speak truth to power uh, and he mustn't color his legal advice by any party political considerations at all that said, the attorney also shares the political objectives of the Mm. government. Mm. And so, generally speaking, that doesn't create any sort of tension or difficulty. And the attorney can turn up quite cheerfully to vote in votes in parliament, which is what I often had to do, particularly Mm. because we were in coalition and there wasn't a big majority. But it's also right to say that the attorney, if he's to do his job properly, has to have some distance from the political cut and thrust, Mm. partly because the attorney's opinions have got to be trusted by the opposition uh, when they are provided in areas of real difficulty and contention. Mm. So being the attorney general is a significantly different job from an ordinary ministerial appointment. And I became very aware of that. That's why I have to say it wasn't a job I had particularly ever (laughs) Aimed for, mm. I saw myself in much more classic political role in government, but I realized as time went by that I was enjoying it very much. Mm. Uh, I felt it was something I could do reasonably well. Uh, I enjoyed above all the extraordinary privilege of working with a very small group of dedicated and very knowledgeable lawyers in the attorney general's office. Mm. And the Attorney General's office only got 42 people working in it. Uh, Certainly, it may even have gone down since then, but it was around 42 when I was there. It had been a little bit higher. And essentially there were about 17 qualified lawyers who were experts in their field and had yep. come in from yep. other government departments and then the rest were support staff. But this was a very happy ship. Mm. And consistently, uh, when there was the annual survey of morale in the civil service, the attorney general's office used to come out top. <laughs> and this didn't come as any surprise to me because mm. people got on well. Uh, there was a high level of morale. There mm. used to be quiz nights organized about two, three times a year by my private secretary where we would all sit around (laughs) and and, and drink and and have, uh, eat nibbles and sandwiches and we would do quizzes on politics, which bring everybody in this department who wanted to participate together Mm. in teams. there There was a real sense of purpose. And as I say, I mean, if I do nothing else in politics in terms of holding office, um, I regard it as an extraordinarily privileged thing to have been able to be the attorney general. Mm. Quite apart from the fact, it also opens the doors to a range of activities, whether it's appearing in court, which I hadn't. Inevitably, my practice had been winding down when I was in parliament. I didn't mm. keep it up um, and I took silk in 2008. Mm before I became attorney, that the truth is it had been winding down. And this gave it a, a delightful boost a couple of appearances in the Supreme Court, regular outings in the uh, the divisional court. Yeah. Uh, there was some fascinating things there. Uh, and I just found it a very rewarding thing to do.
1: Mm. Um, well, I think that was the last time we spoke at length. And, uh, and at the time, there was a lot of talk around contempt of court, uh, particularly around social media, and that's something which hasn't really gone away. Uh, it, it, in fact, has just become probably even more problematic. Um, uh, is there anything that you look back now and think, well, had I pushed that a little bit harder, not, not, not that specifically, but generally, um, had I done a, something different there, would that have had, had, it had a greater impact later on? You've mentioned so, social
0: media is undoubtedly a big issue. Worth bearing in mind, though, that at the time I came into office, we were facing a situation where the working of the Contempt of Court Act had got to such a point that effectively, my predecessors had given up trying mm-hmm. to enforce it. So we had a situation where we were getting national newspapers, let alone social media, mm-hmm. routinely misbehaving Commenting on court cases when they were live, yep. uh, seriously undermining the capacity of individuals to have a fair trial. And whilst the Contempt of Court Act is not absolute, it came in precisely to provide a margin mm. to allow for freedom of uh, communication was very important. It, it its norms were just not being respected, mm. and there was a sense, I think, with my predecessors that there was no point trying. Mm. And I felt very strongly about this, partly, I think, because I in the past, I've been a criminal barrister. And it seemed to me that fair trial process with a jury is going to become impossible if mm. we continued down this uh, route. And so I did take some decisions when I was attorney, which was a twofold approach. One was that I was going to prosecute cases uh, which were particularly egregious. Uh, and secondly, that I would try to get a very clear message out to the legal advisers to national media of where the boundary lines were mm-hmm. and to try to engage with them in a in a positive spirit. So mm-hmm. I used to go to the Society of Editors, you know, annual dinner and I was the speaker and I said, I don't want to prosecute you. Um, there are perfectly good ways of avoiding being prosecuted, but you've mm-hmm. got to play by the rules and not outside of them. And fortunately, whether it's because I think it may be that the judiciary were beginning to pick up just how serious this problem was becoming. Uh, I found myself able to check on a number of not very many occasions to put a marker down about unacceptable behavior. The most notable one, of course, was the, uh, the events with the Sun and the Daily Mirror uh, over the uh, Bristol murder case. Yeah. Um, in which I was able to secure uh, convictions for um, uh, contempt of court. Mm. And although you know the fines aren't very massive, newspapers don't like uh, mm. being hauled through the courts in this way and having to pay the costs. And I think it brought some check on this type of activity. Now, you raised social media and you're absolutely right. We then have a major problem with social media, which in some ways is almost uncontrollable, although it's worth pointing out that people who break court orders and name uh, victims or defendants in trials where where they shouldn't are being prosecuted. Although that's not actually directly an attorney general's responsibility. It's Mm. done by the by the CPS. And I had to bring proceedings against jurors who were not listening to what the judge told them about not going and researching the mm. background of cases on social media and on the Internet. Uh, and there's never a pleasant thing to do. Uh, but again, I think that we have tightened up the rules mm. and that as a consequence, uh, my impression is that there are fewer such episodes taking place. The judges, I think, are more confident in explaining what people shouldn't do. I think in the past they may have been a little bit reluctant to sort of spell it out. Yeah. Uh, but when spelling it out is linked to the fact that some of the people who've done it have ended up with three months mm. in prison, I think the message does go home. Yeah. Um, so for those reasons, you know, one of the things which gave me a certain amount of satisfaction when I was attorney was that I felt that I'd been able to reverse the tide and actually get a dialogue going. And I don't know, others people will have to judge. I haven't followed, because I've been busy with other things in the last couple of years, with intimate detail what's been happening since. Mm. And I know there have been some further prosecutions, Mm. but my impression is that people are a little less troubled about the sort of uh, sensationalist coverage Mm. that was undermining jury trials through the media and I get the impression that jurors are in fact respecting what the judges ask them to do.
1: Mm. On a slight tangent, I, I know that you're not uh, um, an avid user of Twitter, uh, unlike um, the current attorney. Uh, uh, and I don't know if you saw the other day that he tweeted um, to John Snow just the comment um, part of my French bollocks. Um, do, do you- <laughs> I can't imagine that was something that you would have uh, contemplated. No, I don't, I don't tweet, uh, and I don't tweet for a very good reason. I realise this may
0: make me look eccentric, but I think tweeting is a form of propaganda. Uh, and quite apart from anything else, if I was going to, I, I can see that why uh, people may wish to do it. But I wasn't doing it in 2010, and I certainly wasn't <laughs> doing it when I was Attorney General, and mm. I haven't done it since. And I would strongly recommend myself that anybody who is Attorney General shouldn't
1: tweet. Uh, I think that's good advice. Uh, I think if I was in the S- if it's a solicitor, it might well be struck off uh, by the SRA, which is quite interesting. Um, uh, you, you've, you've mentioned the DPP that you're working with as Attorney General. Of course, that was Kia Starmer, who, who now you're looking at across the benches. Um, but but back in uh, following your time as Attorney General, you went to the back benches for uh, well where you are now, uh, strictly speaking, and. Uh, You Do you spend time back in chambers? Were you back in court? I've done a little bit of work, but of course,
0: very quickly, after about nine months, uh, once the 2015 election was out of the way, two things happened. Uh, Firstly, um, I became chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is something of a full-time job. Mm. Uh, And as it takes up two mornings a week, uh, at least, it becomes very difficult to start taking on commitments to mm-hmm. go into court. So I haven't been into court at all um, in the last two, three years, which I regret. Um, I would haven't ruled out the possibility that that may resume at some point. Uh, But at the moment, I think I just have to accept it's not going to happen. I have also been doing something which I hadn't done previously, which is quite a lot of sort of academic lecturing, mainly around Brexit or human rights or Mm. the UK constitution. Um, Again, I've, I've... brought that slightly to uh, an end at the moment, because writing a 6,000-word written lecture uh, is a very time-consuming activity. And in the middle of the current political crisis, we've got it's it's, to suddenly realise I have got to give a 6,000-word lecture next Monday is not a very good place to be. At the moment, I'm just concentrating on the day-to-day
1: of this particular crisis. So talking about the particular crisis, uh, it's impossible, it's really put you back on the front pages, um, for better and for worse. Um, We look back to that comment, uh, I think it was in the mail, about being an enemy of the people alongside many other legal politicians, uh, if if I can call them that, uh, at the time. How on earth do you you cope? How on earth do you deal with this? Um, uh, You don't often strike me whenever I meet you as a what I would call a rebel, uh, and yet this is the nickname that you've received. Um, how do you deal with this? It is a rather
0: strange turn, turn of events. I certainly never seen myself as a rebel, probably rather an establishment figure. Really, uh, I found myself as the Brexit saga has unfolded mm. in, with increasing concern. And I have to say I have to accept disagreement with the way in which it has been approached. It started out with the fact that in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, Brexit is a revolutionary event. So it's upturned our constitutional norms and it's a huge policy change which democratic governments, which normally aim to provide quiet continuity, Mm. are very ill-equipped to deal with and deliver. Um, And so they tried to take shortcuts So initially, my resistance or rebellion, and indeed most of my resistance and rebellion hasn't been over destination. It has been over process. Mm. The amendments I've tabled, I mean, I was shocked by the attack on the judiciary who only doing their job in the Mm. Miller case. And that seemed to me to absolutely highlight the hysteria that's taken over. And then the attempts by the government to try to short circuit ordinary parliamentary process, which led to my first rebellions over meaningful votes and trying Mm. to ensure that we couldn't be dragged out of the EU without Parliament having considered all the options. Mm. And really, that's been the main part of my input. Now, of course, I accept it's also right that I think that Brexit is a historic mistake and I think it's something we're going to come to regret. But people accuse me of trying to sabotage it. And I have to say, I'm not a saboteur. It's sabotaging itself. Mm. And the reason why it's sabotaging itself is because it's proving incredibly difficult to deliver. And that's an inherent problem with the question, not the people who are highlighting the inherent problems it creates. Mm. And of course, we've now got to a point where the prime minister in good faith has gone away and negotiated a deal which may be actually the best terms on which we can leave. Mm. But nobody likes it, or Mm. at least only a tiny number of people, 14% of the electorate think it's a good deal. So, should we be surprised that Parliament rejects it? In fairness to my colleagues in the ERG, who are the hard Brexiters, I can understand why they don't like what they see. I don't like what I see. But then the question arises, what else do we do? Mm -hmm. Now, some people say we should crash out with no deal for a whole series of legal and political reasons. I think that is a terrible idea and I will do everything I can to prevent that happening. And indeed, I don't think it is going to happen. I think even the prime minister knows it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. But if we're not crashing out and if we're not having the prime minister's deal, what exactly are we doing? Is there an alternative form of Brexit that might command support? Mm. Well, there may be, but you've got to identify it and you've got to work it up. And it's not currently deliverable and you'd have to change the political declaration that all is going to need time, probably several months. The other option is seeing where we are, would it not be proper to go back and say to the public, we've got a deal, do you like it? The alternative is remaining in the EU. I don't Mm. see anything undemocratic about that. Mm. But of course, that's the thing which then attracts you, the vilification and the death threats and everything else. Although fortunately, because I don't tweet, I don't get trolled. So I do get quite a lot of nasty copy coming in by email, Uh, Uh, but I don't think I get the same volume mm. as my social media using colleagues get.
1: Mm. which is another good reason for not tweeting. Um, You were recently uh, seen marching uh, in, I think, what's now being called one of the biggest, if not the biggest, public protests, certainly in recent years, Um, and speaking in in Parliament Square, uh, alongside uh, Jess Phillips, um, as a bit of a potential new This Morning double act, I I think (laughs) have been the comments. Um, How important is it for you to be working across parties on these issues? These issues have created a lot of cross-party working. Uh, and I'm pleased about
0: that. I mean, obviously we come into Parliament and normally we work on three political parties, but the truth is the party system is breaking down at the moment for the two main parties. There are deep divisions in each. And I have to say, there aren't, haven't been many pleasures out of Brexit. I was trying to identify them the other day and, <laughs> and uh, talking to my family and I said, well, I, I could identify two. The first one was that I have got to know much better opposition MPs mm. and realized a lot about them and come to admire them. And I've been it's been a privilege to work with many of them. And the only other one I can think of is a number of times I've had lunches or dinners <laughs> in rather pleasant surroundings in EU embassies in London, which is always a very nice thing to do because they, they tend to be rather nicely furnished and pleasant places. <laughs> but apart from that, this has been the most wearisome, difficult, mm. rather obsessional Process that this country has been embarked on which is diverting our attention and, uh, and energy from all the other myriad topics which mm. we
1: should in fact have in focus mm. and uh, on that point what topics are on the horizon what should we be looking at going forward what, where will you be uh, sort of- putting your support first of all we have to get brexit resolved one way or the other
0: Uh, although i'm afraid that unless we choose to have a referendum and remain the awful truth is that it is going to continue to be dominant even if we leave in the next few months uh it will continue to be dominant for the next probably five to ten years until we have sorted out the future relationship and that does worry me Mm. what are the other issues well i mean you have to look um we've had for perfectly good reasons, and I don't criticize the government about this, uh, years of relative austerity, although rather less austerity, because actually public expenditure has gone up. Mm. But I don't think it's difficult to note around that there are lots of areas of public service provision that need more attention whether it's the state of our roads or national defense, which I worry about very much, Mm. uh, or education, uh, investment in infrastructure. There's a whole range of of challenges which I think are, I mean, they are being addressed in fairness by the government, but they're not getting the profile they need and it's marking time. I want to go back to ordinary politics Mm. uh, as soon as possible. But the trouble is we have perpetrated on ourselves this massive disruption. Uh, and how that can be for the benefit of the citizens of this country is it's just a dream that mm-hmm. it will benefit them in any way at all. So the sooner mm-hmm. we've resolved this, the better.
1: Well, I know you're not a, a user of social media, as I've heard, but there's a lot of talk on that. And I really do foresee a return to the front bench politics very, very soon. And, um, and I just want to say thank you and wish you all the best uh, going forward. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk. Uh, I think return to front
0: bench politics, uh, I think that's very speculative indeed. But whatever I'm doing, I'm very, very pleased to be in Parliament. And if I can continue to do some good here, uh, I shall be happy.
1: The Hearing As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and uh, why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The
0: Hearing A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.